0: So a little local color, as we're talking about Smyrna, uh, living in Middle Tennessee now for seven years, I had, you know, had, well, why is Smyrna Smyrna? So that, that was just low-hanging fruit for me. I had to day around. About 1810, 1820, the Smyrna Presbyterian Church began. There was no town. Um, they chose the name of the church from the passage we're going to look at today, out of Revelation, chapter 2. Um, later on, when the railroad came through, Smyrna took the name of the town from the church, which is not uncommon around the country. Falls Church, Virginia is another example. The Falls Church was there long before Falls Church in Virginia was incorporated as a city. Um, The railroad in town established it. 1863, the Union soldiers burned the church to the ground. It was rebuilt a couple of times. Uh, The history is a little sketchy on the locations. But what's intriguing to me is today, the 18th hole of the Smyrna golf course is where the original location of the church. I have no theological category for that. I just don't know. You have to ask Bill Wellens what that means, or you golfers. But um, the 18th hole for the Presbyterians, I don't know. But there you have it. Revelation chapter 2, open your Bible. Revelation chapter 2, let's read verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And as you turn to your Bible or open your electronic version thereof, would you stand, please? Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And the angel of the church, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You can take a seat. Smyrna means myrrh. It was a compound taken from a shrub, pressed and turned into a resin. It was used for a common perfume. It's used in Exodus as the uh, special uh, anointing oil that God designed for the temple complex, for the priest. It's also used in compounds for embalming the dead in John 19. So it's a fragrant aroma that's used. The city was 35 miles north of Ephesus. Remember the way John defines these churches, he goes in a counterclockwise measure when he explains each of the churches. It's on the seaport of the Aegean. Uh, It's a beautiful location even today. It was called many different things. It was called the Ornament of Asia. It was also called the Crown of Asia. Uh, They had a theater there at Mount Pagus that could seat 20,000 spectators in antiquity. Think about that. It was a Greek colony till about 627 BC. And after that time, it was destroyed by the Lydians. Uh, 400 years, it lay in ruins. Um, at that point, a guy named Lysimachus came and rebuilt the city and turned it into the grandeur that rivaled Ephesus and Pergamos of the time. At some point, the church is planted there. We don't know precisely when. Um, my guess is that it was one of Paul's missionary journeys, 53, 56, uh, AD, Paul is going out on his three treks to plant churches to make disciples. And so a church is established in Smyrna today. It is Izmir Turkey with almost 3 million people who populate the area and what's referred to as old Smyrna or the Smyrna of antiquity is still a site where pilgrims go for tours and to see, uh, the remnants left over by the Greek and Roman construction. Like many lands, when Rome came into an area, once they occupied an area with military force, we've talked about this before, they would then begin taxation. Because if you have an outpost there, if you're occupying a land, you've got to feed those soldiers and all that go along with it. So the way you do that is to tax the people that you're protecting that are under the Roman Empire. So eventually, it's, it's voluntary that you worship Caesar, you give a you would call it a tithe, you burn incense to Caesar. But after they get positioned and get a large military establishment and have heavy taxation on you, it becomes compulsory. So the government of Rome, in their reach of the Roman Empire, eventually causes them to pay taxes to Caesar and worship Caesar. Ryrie writes, a pinch of incense was offered to Caesar and you could get a certificate which read, We, the representatives of the emperor... Servos and Hermas have seen you sacrificing. So you put your little pinch of incense to Caesar, a little puff goes up, and they get a little certificate, and you go home, hey, we worship Caesar. The problem with this, however, if you were a pantheistic person, you could put many gods on your shelf, the mantle of your heart. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't do either of those things. You can't offer worship to Caesar, and you can't participate in uh, thinking that Caesar is a god. Well, in Smyrna, the traveler would pass all kinds of temples to Aphrodite to Apollo, culminating in a shrine to Zeus and its grandeur. Uh, It is the birthplace of Homer and Polycarp is the first bishop and we'll talk more about him in a few minutes. What is Christ doing in the book of Revelation? Let's come high and then go to the detail. Look at chapter 1, verse 17 for just a second. Turn back a page or a paragraph or so. Revelation 1, verse 17. When When he begins this Introduction in, in Revelation and how he's presenting himself to these churches, John is going to respond. when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his, uh, he placed his hand on, uh, right hand on me, saying, "Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the king of Hade, of death in Hades." And that's going to recur in our section today in Revelation 2, verse 8. To to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. So the first and the last is a phrase we're going to see a lot of times. It occurs a lot of times in Isaiah, also in the book of Revelation. And just to remind you, what he's saying here is, I am the eternal one, the first and the last, and I was dead and I'm alive, so I'm the resurrected one. So those are the two things I'd like you to keep in your mind. I'm the eternal one, and I'm the resurrected one. What is Christ saying to these churches? I'm the eternal one, and I'm the one who's been resurrected. The eternal one and the resurrected one. Christ explains himself. Uh, To identify who he is is one thing. To explain what he has done and what he is doing is helpful for the believer. I am the eternal one, and I am the resurrected one. He's existed in eternity past. He existed even though he was killed and dead and buried, and he exists into eternity future. If we learn nothing else than other, the, how significant the personal work of Christ is, his supremacy, his authority, his eternality, his grandeur, his awesomeness, his holiness, his righteousness, His care for His churches. If we learn nothing else than reminded of the personal work of Jesus Christ, the study of the seven churches is worth every bit of our time. Because our Christology must expand as we grow in our walk with Christ. Understand who He is and what He's done. And He's given us a baseline at these churches. I am the eternal one, and I am the resurrected one. Page Patterson wrote, He precedes all creation, and He will remain after all else is gone. John MacArthur writes, here is the profound mystery. How can the ever-living one who transcends time and space and history die? Peter answers in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He died in his incarnate humanness as the perfect sacrifice for sin, but now has come to life by his resurrection. And he lives forever according to the power of of an indestructible life i like that an indestructible life how was he eternally existing but he dies peter answers he was put to death but made alive in the spirit he's the eternal god and he's the resurrected god and now as a resurrected god he is indestructible eternally If you have been in conversations uh, at work or with friends or late, right now buzzing in in publications in print media and social media uh, all around the country is this whole notion of, is worshiping Allah the same as worshiping God? Missionary organizations, universities are grappling with this in, in no small way. It is a very big issue in our country today. Is worshiping Allah the same as worshiping God, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, Jesus? is all the same. And one of the challenges we face as a people of God, uh, new and novel things are just that. Universities, which I love the academic world, I truly do, but academia has become a sort of a liberal arts think tank. Uh... Certainly there are majors that train in skill sets and development and giving you equipment for medical, for legal, whatever you're going to go into. But at the liberal arts level, at the social level, the university mindset, when you have tenured professors and the god of academic freedom, and that's what it's become, a little g god, I can teach whatever I want, you can't fire me once I have tenure. That's your university. And so that's an environment for studying new and novel and cool things. I get all that. But when your sons and daughters go off to college, when your grandchildren go off to college, they're going to be tested in every which way. In college universities that have become inclusive and tolerant, uh, if they're not a patently Christian university, it's a pretty unique challenge. And in those universities, they're all trying to artfully figure this out. Jesus Christ is disclosing himself as the eternal God and the resurrected God. Jesus Christ makes claims throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. When he speaks, he's making claims of who he is. He's eternally existed. Before Abraham was, I am. The seven I am's as he identifies himself to different Jews. The way he identifies himself to the Samaritan, to the publican. The way he identifies himself to Nicodemus. Jesus Christ is identifying himself as the God-man. Now, from Genesis all through Revelation, we have innumerable references to the personal work of Jesus Christ. Apart from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. Period. Period. And if you believe that today, fine. You are going to be tested, my prediction, in the next two, three decades. If you don't believe that, great. You need to examine it for yourself. You need to make a decision on what you stand on when you face God, however you determine him or her or it, you need to make a determination of what that means to have a relationship with God. Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, and promises any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, a free gift called eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and the process of changing you into what you are not, to live with him forever. And the Chapters of Revelation we're looking at could not be more clear. He is the eternal one. He's the resurrected one. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the academics and the social media that's flying around there in feverish ways tell you what to think about God. For goodness sakes. I was talking to a young woman a while back about some of these issues, and she made the comment, well, I just don't know if I believe that. And I wanted to give her a fatherly dope slap (laughs) and say, you, you can say you don't know, but on what authority are you saying, I don't think I believe that? That's our culture in a nutshell. It's become a completely intellectually relativistic society. Whatever you want to do is fine. It's not. Because you stand before a holy God who loves you. He loves you so much he died for you he doesn't want your religion. He wants your love. He wants a relationship. He died for you. And that is the only God of the scripture. All others are false. All others are untrue. Well, the message from Christ, I know your tribulation and your poverty, verses nine and following. The reason Christ is talking to Smyrna is very clear. I know what you're going through. They're persecuted and they're impoverished. Now, Christ is going to give them, here's the principle, eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. That's the big message of this chapter. He's giving them eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. Now, no one ever shed a tear over a principle, but that's the principle of this story, the principle of this chapter. I'm going to give you eternal hope in the midst of your temporal despair. That's the theology of this passage that we're looking at. Let's unpack it a little more. The tribulation is the word... That's what it means. It means distress, it means trouble, it means pain, it means affliction or oppression. Poverty seems best here to take it literally. We don't know precisely why the church of Smyrna was impoverished because the area of Smyrna is pretty prosperous at this time. But because there's no rebuke to Smyrna, he's not telling the church, the reason you're in tribulation and the reason you're in poverty is because you lost your first love or whatever would fill in the blank. We're not told that. In fact, this church, in a way, is in a very good place. They're just being persecuted and they're impoverished. And so he's telling them how to face that. It could be that the Roman Caesar influence, as I mentioned earlier, taxation and the worship of Rome has put pressure on this church that if you don't worship Caesar, are going to tax you heavily, going to threaten you and, and persecute you. And maybe that's why they're feeling persecuted and certainly would explain why they were poor. Important sidebar here, um, Christians are not not promised a happy-go-lucky, wealthy life. In, in this country, in this county, in this middle Tennessee world, it is very seductive to think our life's going to work out, and if we do the right thing the right way, we're going to get make money and be wealthy and, and do the things we want. Generally speaking, that's the opportunity of America. Be careful. Sometimes health interrupts our plans. Sometimes our companies go out of business. Sometimes we lose big contracts. Sometimes you go through litigation. Sometimes fill in the blank. So this life is not one that's a trajectory that's always going up if you're living a holy, prosperous, uh, blessed life. Blessing comes in different ways. Christ left heaven's glory to come to earth for 30-some years. Don't forget that. He left the most opulent kingdom ever to be in the most humiliated among the most despicable sinners, you and me. So there's no guarantee that if we live the right way, everything's going to work out. But your Bible probably has parentheses around this. But you're rich. Wait a minute. We're persecuted and we're poor. But you're telling us we're rich. Paul wrote it in Second Corinthians eight and nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. He left heaven's glory, took on impoverished humanity so that you and I will become rich. Second part of verse 9. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews are not but a synagogue of Satan. Blasphemy or slander is primarily a verbal It can be verbal slanders, verbal accusations. We might think back on Acts chapter 14 when the Jews are poisoning the minds of the Jewish authorities about what Paul and Barnabas are doing. That's a blasphemy. We tend to make that word a real religious word. It's used in religious connotation, but it's an accusation or a slander of some kind. Christ says that these so-called Jews aren't Jews at all, but in fact they're the synagogue of Satan. Now, I think what's going on here in this passage, and I can't, this isn't bulldogmatic, but my sense is, He's talking to the church. The church is what? The ekklesia. Two words in Greek, ek from out of, kaleo is the call. The ones who are called out from to respond to the Christ. That's ekklesia. The synagogue is, in a sense, the opposite it's the gathering together. Now, it's sure we call the church the assembly, but don't miss the word. kaleo. you're called out of a culture and you're called to Christ and you live as a body of Christ. But the synagogue was the one who was separate. In fact, they're so separate, even today, most orthodox uh, synagogues have curtains or walls between the men and women. The Gentile, the goyim, don't come in. You're not, you're not permitted. Even You've seen movies and films of the uh, orthodox weddings. Oftentimes, the men and women are separated by a wall, and the women are dancing on the one side, and the men dance on the other. They're separate. So the synagogue model was that you were separate from, but you're uh, this group... This is a chilling phrase that Jesus used. They who say they're Jews but aren't, they're actually the synagogue of Satan. I'm talking to you, the church of Smyrna. Don't pay attention to the, those who are aligned with the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. A good rendering would be stop being afraid. Human condition, fear. We all experience it. We're all afraid at different times of our life. Um... When period of, oh gosh, four or five years, I can remember waking up every morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, wake up, and it was a start when I woke up, and I'm up for the day. My, the to-do list just came down like a shade. All the things I had to do, all the problems, all the issues, all the, all the jobs I had to get done, and I was never going to get them done. And that went on for years. I woke up with that start, and it was like, oh gosh, and it just started, my mind would just race. And my knot was just perpetual. The only time it wasn't there was right before I woke up in the morning without start. It was a miserable way to live. And for some of us, that's just, you know, it's how we're wired, perhaps, our own identity. I remember, it, it takes something thing getting into your late 40s, early 50s, before you realize it's going to be there tomorrow. It's never going away. You'll never answer all those emails. You will never get all the work done. You will never, ever get your to-do list completely done. Take a deep breath. Why do we fear? We live in fear. Fear might be, psychologists in the room could correct me, I would say if, if it's not number one, it's probably one of the top two or three primary responses we have to every situation. Our marriage is in trouble, we get afraid. Our job's in jeopardy, we become afraid. We go to a doctor waiting for a pathology or report a test, we live in fear. We're we're creatures of fear. A relationship's not going well. We get afraid. One of our children, oh man, they continue to make bad bad decisions. We're so anxious about our child, our son, our daughter, our grandchildren, our great, we're afraid. I mean, that guy's going to raise my grandchild? No way in the world. We're afraid, right? We live in fear. What's the number one command, the most often repeated command in the Bible? Do not fear. Hello, McFly theology. Why does God say more than any other thing in the Bible, don't be afraid? Because we are fearful. Why does he tell Joshua over and over again, be strong and take courage, be strong and take courage, be strong and take courage? Because he was strong and courageous? You don't tell somebody who's strong and courageous, be strong and take courage. You take somebody who feels weak and is discouraged to have strength and courage, Right? I mean, we, we don't, we, we overthink this stuff or we miss it because it's so obvious. So we live in fear. Jesus says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Now, wait a minute. This kind of sounds like be warm and be filled. And the more we read it, the more it seems that way. We are fallen creatures in a fallen context and life is not going to work. The antidote to fear is faithful living. The antidote to fear is faithful living. Because I can't fix that innumerable to-do list. I can't repair all the damaged relationships. I can't, no money's gonna solve all the problems in any of our lives. No health antidote is gonna fix our condition and make us perfectly healthy human beings. We are in a decaying, falling, broken context. We're dying people. And as a result of that, we have to live in this context. And the way to live it without fear is to be faithful. I say it. Over and over and over, and I talk to people who live with chronic pain or going through cancer treatments or whatever, is you get so dismantled and, and disjointed with all your treatments and recovery so difficult and treatment so difficult. I said, look, just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. Wash a load of clothes. Get out of bed. Take a shower. Get dressed. Make one appointment today. Deal with one insurance call. Just do the next thing because you can't do them all. Don't live in fear, live faithfully. further, you're going to face this suffering, and if you face it faithfully, you'll be rewarded. Now, many people have tried to interpret what the meaning of ten days uh, might be, and I, I read innumerable accounts. Um, I, I would just say this about numbers. The number three, seven, ten, forty. 100, 10,000. I call these God's theological round numbers. He likes them. God likes those numbers. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know anymore. What code book has ever come true? What was the book last year all these Christians were reading? You know, Blood Moon or Harbinger, Blood Moon, whatever I mean. God bless these people that write them. I'm not, I'm not mad at them. I just think when you start putting math to define theology, you're going to stub your toe every time. Don't read a code book. Don't buy a book on numbers in the Bible. Go buy a cup of coffee. You'll get more benefit out of it. (laughs) Trust me on one thing in life. Go blow it at Starbucks. Don't spend it on a book about numbers. It's ridiculous. Math will not uh, decipher some code reading revelation backwards, listening to the Beatles or something. It's not going to happen. The promise is if you're faithful to death, he's going to give you the crown of life, crown of life, crown of life. What did I tell you Smyrna was called? The crown of Asia. Hmm, could be a connection. That was the lore of the day. Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia. They're being persecuted and they're impoverished. He says, wait a minute, I'm going to give you a crown of life. One that's going to transcend the place you live. Crown is the word Stephanos. If your name's Stephen, your name means crown or award or prize. David On writes In the ancient world, wreaths were used in a variety of settings with a spectrum of connotations, including victory, peace, honor, and immortality. And the victory wreath, as a metaphor, was the reward of the martyr. He who has an ear, an idiom, let him hear. He who has an ear at the conclusion of each of the seven churches, it's called a proclam- proclamation formula. Pay attention. Listen up. My dad was the master of sayings. Any of you have parents that said the same thing to you over and over and over again when you were children? Yeah, I actually wrote a tribute to my dad when he retired, and the last chapter was called Sayings. It was all the things he said to me. They drove me crazy when I was a kid. Turn the light off when you read the room. Do it now or sooner. By the inches of the inch; by the yard, it's hard. I mean, he just, I hated him as a child. I became a parent. I bequeathed him to my children. <laughs> Do it an hour sooner, and always. It, it's, it's, that's probably why I woke up at the start. All this line, <laughs> Dad's fault. Blame it on my dad. Um, when I read phrases like this, my mind runs. Listen, pay attention. Again, can't be bulldogmatic, but I kind of think he's hinting back to the Jewish Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Pay attention, Israel, because you're going to a land where there's multiple gods. There's all sorts of polytheism out there. There's adultery and immorality tied into worship systems in Cana. You have one God, monotheistic. Love the Lord, your God, all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The great Shema. And now we have these seven proclamations of the churches. Listen up. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The world, the powers, the authorities may well reject Christ and his word and that might even bring injury and pain on certain believers, but Christ again explains to them this will be a short while. The second death is uh, another big debate. What does the second death mean? There's all sorts of speculation. This one to me is a no-brainer. Revelation 20 verse 14 says it's the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Lake of the fire is a compound of terms that mean hell so once we die because we're made in the image of god by the way everyone in this room will live forever it's just location and relationship that's not certain you're going to live forever because you're made in the image of god not because you're so special but you're made in the image of god we're eternal beings right now in a shell in a suit that keeps us here but when we pass from this we're going to live forever somewhere so the second death is a tell to the lake of fire in Revelation 20, 14. So what he's saying is you're going to die, but compared to that second death, don't worry about it because you're not going to go there. You're going to be with me forever. You know, pain is a funny thing. Pain is, um, some of us in this room deal with chronic pain. Some of you go through it. Um, there's what they, they call, pain management doctors sometimes call it a primary generator. What's the primary generation of pain? And they're trying to diagnose that because the primary generation of pain turns off other pain. For example, when I had my big fusion in my neck in 2010, uh, the lower back pain that I experienced 24-7 called sciatica down my legs. um, When they did this surgery, my lower back didn't hurt at all. Because the pain here is so much more overwhelming than other pains, aches and pains. So I could sit in a recliner for an hour. I can't sit in a recliner today for two minutes or my back and legs flare up and I got to stand up and stretch and sit in a hard chair. But when you have an overwhelming pain, you forget the other pains. The aches go away because your body can't process that much data they old joke about you got a headache, hit your thumb with a hammer, your headache goes away. <laughs> your thumb's throbbing more than your head's hurting and you don't think about your headache. Primary pain generation. I think about that in terms of this. You're going to go through some trial and tribulation, you're going to die. But the primary pain generation is the second fire, the second death, and you're not going to go there. How many women in the room who had children without uh, epidurals? You went Accomando, you know, you had that baby. Real, I'm a woman, hear me roar, right? And you were dying. You're going to kill the doctor, your husband, anybody in the room going through that delivery without any medication. And then when it's over, how quickly do you forget? I'll never have another child in my life during contractions, right? This is one and done, baby. And then when it's over, ah, when I don't, you don't remember it. We have no memory of pain. Interesting, isn't it? We don't have a memory of what it was like. We know we were hurting, but we don't experience it today. This is a, I think that's a good theological lesson. The sin and the fallen condition that we're in today that, that wears us out, that we live in fear, that we feel in pain because of, is nothing when we cross that threshold. It's gone. You're suffering for 10 days, a short window of time. In eternity's perspective, don't worry about it because if you're faithful, you won't feel it anymore. Faithfulness in life, through pain, through suffering, through injustices, through death, doesn't matter. Polycarp is the aged bishop of the church at Smyrna. Um, in the famous John Ford movie, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, there's a classic line in there when he says, when the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Meaning, it doesn't matter what's true. If a legend is a great story, you print the legend, you tell the story. When we read about the life of Polycarp, we have to be careful because he's a legend, and we don't know what is precisely true. We do know some things factually, but we can't tell everything is verbatim. This for sure happened. So let me give you a synopsis of Polycarp's life. Tradition had it, he was discipled by John, and very reliable tradition has it that he was the last living pastor-bishop who was actually commissioned by living apostles, which is kind of cool if true. He is one of the first, if not the first, church father. And he wrote a letter to uh, the, the church at Philippi. You can find it online or read it if you want. It's not long. Uh, it's not biblical. It's not a Bible letter. But it's a pastor who knew John and very likely a handful of the apostles. And he dies... Uh, and if they die off, he sort of carries on the baton, we might say, of the church plants. He's arrested at 86 years of age, and he's typically called the aged bishop of Smyrna. That's sort of his name. Um, he was notified he was going to be arrested, and he waited at home, and his friends came, and they were all concerned about his welfare and said, you've got to get out of here, Polycarp. They took him away and protected him, and he, he holds up in prayer, prayer for a while, and evidently he had some kind of vision. And he came out and he said, I had a vision that I must be burned alive. So he said, I've got to surrender myself. So he goes and the Romans come to take him. He doesn't, he doesn't resist arrest. And he actually says to them, God's will be done when they arrest him. They take him to the proconsul, who history does bear out is statius quadratus, statius quadratus. And he's a living a figure living at the time. We know he was real, and he interrogates them in front of a crowd. There's disputes about whether there were a panel of judges or a crowd of people. We don't know for sure, but the records that where they do line up are very interesting. Um, in this group of of onlookers, Polycarp is interrogated, and evidently he was quite witty and quite sharp on his feet when he's being interrogated by Cradatus. The heathen judge asks him at some point to recant his Christian faith and just give a little incense to Caesar and be done with it. And he replies, Four scores and six years I have been I have served the Lord, and he has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? And that is a fairly well attested statement. Four score and six years I have served the Lord, and he has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior. Quadratus loses his temper evidently at Polycarp. he threatens him with all kinds of things. I'm going to throw you the wild beast," I'm going to burn you at the stake. Here the traditions and legends tend to separate a little bit. But what is an what is agreement is at one point he finally says in this brandishing about these threats, he goes, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. The soldiers grab him and tie him. They're going to take him to the stake. Some accounts say they tried to burn him alive. Others say they tried to burn him alive and beasts were involved. It kind of mixes up. But what is consistent, they were going to nail him to the stakes to burn him. And he says, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire of the nails. In other words, you don't have to nail me to those those logs because... If this is my destiny and you're going to burn me, God will enable me to stay here while you burn me at the stake. One part of the story is that the fire didn't touch him. It burned around him. And that a Roman soldier kills him with a spear or sword. And there's other more detailed ones. Apparently he prays aloud while the fire is burning him to death. Um, but he dies if not the first martyr of Smyrna, one of. And the account is concluded by Polycarp said that everyone remembered he is spoken of by the heathen in every place, burned at the stake for his faith. Polycarp, I'm sure, was in great agony for a moment. Luke opened us with a passage two passages from Romans 8, and I'd like to conclude with the last section he read. I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We work so hard at making life comfortable, and that's not all bad. But in the grand picture, we're going to suffer at different times. And to the church of Smyrna, he told, in their tribulation and poverty, nothing recorded they had done wrong. He tells them to be faithful. He tells them to endure. And we would tell us the same. He is the eternal God, and he's the resurrected God. Don't worry about success. Don't worry about getting it all right. Just do the next thing. Be faithful in what he's called us to do. Father, we thank you for your love in our lives that we don't always see nor entirely appreciate. We thank you for the tribulation that each of us experience. We don't like it, but give us a view to see it from your hand that bad things, that injustices happen to us. We may not subscribe them to you, but we are fallen creatures in a fallen context and bad things happen to us. Give us the faith not to worry or fear, but to do the next thing to be faithful to what you've called us to do. That's all you've asked. Thank you that you've empowered us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word is available to remind us. And thank you that we can do it with a body of people that are all trying to walk in the same direction, limping along to live a life of faith. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you very well. We pray in your powerful and precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.